So Exodus 25, uh, 17 to 22. And we are still talking about, anybody can help me out here. Shadows of Golgotha, shadows of the cross in the Old Testament. This is sermon number 14. And um, yeah, buckle up, this is good. This is really good, you're gonna love it. Um, we have been talking about different pictures of the cross in the Old Testament. We started from the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis 3.15, the promise to Eve that the seed of his, the, her seed, Jesus, will crush the seed of the serpent. Then Genesis, what, 23.21, when God uh, killed an innocent, sacrificed, created cloth, skin cloth, skin garment for Adam and Eve, and he clothed sinful Adam and Eve. And then we moved on to the ark, the ark of Noah. Right? And we said that's a picture of the cross where the wrath of God falls on the ark and keep those who are inside the ark safe. And that's literally a picture of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And then we went to Genesis 22, the, when Abraham was about to, to, to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. And that was a prophecy, a picture or a shadow of, of Golgotha later on. Then we moved to the book of Exodus, right? And then uh, Exodus 12, we spent four weeks there talking about the Lamb of the Passover. Then we talked about the crossover. And then we talked about, we arrived to the tabernacle of meeting. And this is our third week discussing the furniture of the tabernacle and how parts of this furniture is actually pictures of the cross. Amen? So... Let's look again at the tabernacle, the layout of the tabernacle, and then uh, we'll uh, discuss the third piece of furniture today. So if you have your notes in your top uh, left hand, you're going to see the diagram of the tabernacle of meeting. Um, again, the tabernacles, God gave very specific direction on the actual building, on the actual furniture, the dimension, the material, how everything needs to be built. God was very specific about that. You know, God took a big chunk of the actual words that we know he spoke directly to man to tell us specifically about that building. So that's very important to know. And the author of Hebrews later on told us that this tabernacle is pretty much shadow of the things to come. It's just a prototype of God's salvation plan for the fallen human race. So every word, every dimension, every material in that tabernacle is, is extremely important to look into. So if you have your diagram, um, again, the door was on the east, where you see the letter E. That was the one door to the tabernacle uh, where people can get in. And again, that tabernacle is the building that God commanded Moses and the children of Israel to build. And that was their church. That's the place where they worship God throughout their walk in the wilderness for about 40 years. So the one door was to the tabernacle was in the east. That's when people can get into the tabernacle. And the first piece of furniture that you can see once you get inside the tabernacle called the altar of the burned offering or the brazen altar. That's an altar that is covered with bronze, right? And we talked about this. We said this is the first shadow of the cross in the, in the building of the tabernacle because that resembles how Jesus needed to die for our sins. First thing a sinner needs to do to be reconciled with God is to shed blood and, and shed, shed the blood of an innocent sacrifice to approach God. And that's literally the only way for sinners like you and me to approach a holy and a righteous God through the blood of Jesus. You move a little bit to the west after that. Second piece of furniture is called the brazen or the bronze lever. That's just 
a pot where they can put water to wash themselves. And that, in a way, resembles the word of God. Just as, as any New Testament believer, after you, you, you cleanse by the blood of Jesus from your sins, you need to be cleansed by the water of the word every single day while you're walking with God. Okay? And that is the only two pieces of furniture that in the yard, in the outside the actual building. But the actual building where the, high, the priest and the high priest can enter in has two rooms. The first room called the holy place or the outer room. And that is the room where the high priest or any priest can get into that room as much as they want. There's no problem there to serve God. And it has three pieces of furniture. All of them are uh, pictures of um, either Jesus or our walk with him. From north to south, the, the pieces are the table of the showbread. And then you have the altar of incense. That's where they uh, burn incense sometimes uh, to put it in their uh, censers and stuff like that. God gave specific instructions about that as well. And then the very bottom here, you have the golden lampstand. Three pieces of furniture in the holy place, right? And then there is that wall that we talked about last week that is called what? The veil, right? And that veil separates these two rooms from each other, separates the outer room, which is called the holy place, from the inner room that is called the holy of holies. And we talked about this last week, and we said that this veil is a picture of the humanity of Christ, the, the, the man Jesus. And just like this veil was literally torn, the very second Jesus gave up his last breath on the cross, and through the tearing of that veil, sinful men now have access to a holy God. In the same manner, the tearing of the body of Jesus on the cross when he took our judgment is the only way for sinful men like you and me to have a relationship with a holy God. Amen? Amen. Now we move to the last room, the very inner room, that is called the Holy of Holies. And this room, we talked about it last week, is a perfect cube, 15 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet height. Okay, so there are three dimensions, 15 feet, each one of them. And it has one piece of furniture in that room, just one. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. That's the only thing that is in that room. And the Ark of the Covenant throughout the scripture is a representation of the presence and the glory of God. And we're going to see that a little bit here today. The Holy of Holies, only the high priest enter into that room how many times a year? One. One time a year in the day that is called the Day of Atonement to cover or provide atonement for the sins of the whole nation of Israel. So that is pretty much a simple layout of the tabernacle of meeting. Now let's just look at the very last piece of furniture inside the very Holy of Holies that is called the Ark of the Covenant. And you have a picture of it on your top right hand. Now that Ark of the Covenant has actually like two things. has a lid and then has the actual body of the Ark of the Covenant. Amen? Now, if you let's see if who knows this. There is three parts, three, three things that ended up in that Ark of the Covenant. Anybody knows? Pop quiz. Aaron's right of butt. The tablets. And the manna. They have a jar of manna in it. That's our man. Awesome. Next time you preach, Nancy, okay? <laughs> now, that cover, that cover on that lid do you see that uh, in the picture it's separated and there is uh, a lid with two angels uh, engraved on that lid? That is called the mercy seat. That's the name of that lid. Called the what? Mercy seat. 
mercy seat. Now, that mercy seat that we're going to talk about today, we're not going to talk about the whole piece. We're just going to talk about the covering of that Ark of the Covenant that is called the mercy seat. That is a picture of Christ, and I'll show you how. Let's start by reading from Exodus 25, 17 to 22, how this mercy seat, the atonement cover, need to be made. Here is the instructions from the mouth of God. He's telling Moses, make an atonement cover or mercy seat, okay, of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. So two and a half by one and a half and made of what? Pure gold. Pure gold, nothing in it except gold. And make two cherubim of hammered gold at the end of each cover. We talked about the cherubim being a kind of angel. So God said, hammer cherubim, a picture of the cherubim, of pure gold at each one of the ends of that lid, of that cover. Make one cherubim in one end and the second cherubim on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the make the cherubim of one piece with the cover in other words don't make the cherubim and then uh glue it to the cover this is just the whole thing is one piece all hammered together you cannot it's not parts it's just one piece and then he said at the two ends verse 20 the cherubim are to have their wings spread for upward overshadowing the cover with them if you see at the picture you see how the angel has his wings like going forward facing each other to cover the whole um, lead. And then he says the cherubim are to face each other looking forward, looking toward the cover. So again, they facing each other looking at the cover with their wings stretched out toward one another, covering that cover, that lead. Verse 21, place the cover on the top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law which I will give you. Later on, they added the part of man, manna and they added the, the uh, rod of Aaron that budded. Verse 22, therefore above the cover, look at this, therefore above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commandments for the Israelites. Now, this ark of the covenant is a picture of the cross, is a picture of the crucified Christ. Where do we get this from? Ready? All right. So, in the New Testament, Jesus was said to be propitiation for our sins three times. Okay? Let's read these three verses together. Three times in the New Testament, Jesus is said to be a propitiation. Number one, in Romans 3.25, talking about Christ, and Paul said, whom God has put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in, the, in his divine forbearance, he did he had passed over former sins. That's the first time. Second time was in 1 John 2, 2. Look at this. He is propitiation, talking about Jesus. He is propitiation for our sins. And not only our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And the last time Jesus is said to be a propitiation for our sins is in 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he has loved us. And he has sent his son. Why? To be the propitiation for our sins. Now, this is really cool. Even though it is the exact same word propitiation in English, yet the Greek is different between these two verses. The word that Paul used in Romans 3.25 is slightly different than the word that John used in 1 John 2.2 and 1 John 4.10. What's the difference? 
When John spoke of Jesus being the propitiation of our sins, he used a Greek word called helismas. Helismas. That Greek word talks about, literally talks about the action of propitiation. What is, what is the word propitiation means? Let's talk about that. And that's what the word helismas literally means. Propitiation is something like this. It's like, it's, it's like when you have a God who is so angry and so upset because something has triggered him, and then you offer him a gift, and that gift serves as the purpose of upeasing the wrath of that God. That's in the pagan religion. That is called propitiation, right? And I believe that this, they got that from the scripture. Propitiation means something like you offer to God something with the sole purpose of up-ease and take out his judgment or his wrath over the person. That is the literal meaning of propitiation. That's the action of propitiation. So when John said that Jesus is our propitiation, 1 John 2.2 2 and 1 John 4.10, he used the word that described the action. So he's saying in a way, John is saying in a way, that Jesus was the gift, was the one thing that was offered to God, and through his blood, the wrath of God over sin was upeased once and for all. Amen? Amen. Now, when Paul said that Jesus is our propitiation in Romans 3.25, he used a different Greek word. He used a word called helisterion. Not helismas, but helisterion. It is from the same root, but it's different. The Greek word that Paul used, helisterion, focused more on the place of the propitiation rather than the action of propitiation. Okay? So let's say that again. The Greek word that Paul used in, in Romans 3.25, it is from the same root that John used, but when Paul used it, the Greek word focused more on the locality, the place where propitiation take place rather than the very action of propitiation. You guys follow me? Good? As a matter of fact, the exact same Greek word that Paul used in Romans 3.25 where again he focused on the place of propitiation, was mentioned one more time in the whole New Testament, and that is it. And that one more time where that exact same, same Greek word was mentioned is in Hebrews 9, 5. What did the author of Hebrews say? He's talking about the tabernacle of meeting, and he says, above it, he's talking now about the Ark of the Covenant, okay, in, in, in Hebrews 9, 5, and he said, above it was the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. In Greek, the mercy seat is helisterion, the exact same word that Paul used in Romans 3.25 to describe Christ being the propitiation for our sins. Amen? Amen. You guys see that? So, Point blank, as clear as it can be, the New Testament is teaching us that Jesus is our helisterion. He is our mercy seat. He's not just the reason of the propitiation. He's also like the mercy seat, the place of the propitiation. Amen? So this is how we know from the New Testament that this mercy seat in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, is a shadow of Christ and his death for us on the cross between what Paul said and the author of Hebrews said, you put it together, you know that the mercy seat is a picture of the death of Christ. You follow me? Lost already? Okay, we're good to go? 
It's good. It's, I love it. I love it. So let's talk about that. How is that mercy seat? How is that lid? How is that cover? On the Ark of the Covenant is a picture of Jesus and his death on the cross for us. Amen? There is three similarities that we can find between the mercy seat in the tabernacle and Christ and his death on the cross for us. Let's talk about these three similarities. Number one, the mercy seat was God's dwelling place among his people or among men. Amen. Number two, the mercy seat was God's way of communicating with man. And number three, the mercy seat was God's only provision to atone for the sins of man. Amen. Let's read these three together so I know you guys follow me. Number one, the mercy seat was God's dwelling place among men. Number two, the mercy seat was the way of, was God's way of communicating with men. And number three, the mercy seat was God's only provision to atone for the sins of men. Let's talk about these three um, similarities. Number one, the mercy seat was God's dwelling place among men. Where do we get that from? Two examples in the Old Testament. One, 1 Samuel 4.4. 4. Listen to what God said. So the people send men. This is what the word of God says. 1 Samuel 4.4. 4. So the people send men to Shiloh. And they brought back the Ark of the Covenant. That's when the Ark was captured by the Palestinians. Now they're bringing it back. They brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty. Who is that Lord? Look how the Bible describes him. Who is what? Enthroned between the cherubim. What cherubim? It's the two cherubims that on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. So the Bible tells us that God enthroned between these two cherubims. He dwells, his, his, his throne literally, I mean, obviously it's a spiritual thing, but it's placed between these two cherubims on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Amen? Psalm 81. Look what the psalmist said. Hear us, shepherd of Israel. Who's that? The Lord. Amen. You who lead Joseph like a flock. You who sit where? Enthroned where? Between the cherubim shine forth. So two examples here in the Old Testament where we see the Bible tells us that God dwells. God enthroned. God sits and stays in between these two cherubims on the, on the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. Amen. So that mercy seat was God's dwelling place among men. Does that sound familiar to you or what? Amen. Look at the Lord Jesus. He also was God's dwelling place among men when Jesus was here on earth walking our earth. Amen. Where do we get that from? I'll show you examples. John 1.1 1, 1 and John 1, uh, 18. John 1.1 1, 1 said, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. And, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then verse 118, and the word became what? Flesh. And he did what? Made his dwelling. The Greek word literally tabernacled, pitched his tent among us. And he stayed and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as the glory of one and only son of God um, who came from the Father full of truth and grace. Amen. You put these two together, you see that God has dwelled among men in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, let's do this. So we have this, uh, I, I told you guys about it, so we'll see who remembers. 
But we talked about this before. We and Jehovah Witness have this eternal fight about the grammar of John 1.1, right? That part, the word was God. We say that this is a reference to God Almighty, and they say this is a reference to a God. Like, Jesus is God-like, but he's not God Almighty, okay? And we had that eternal, you know, grammar debate. And to be honest, the grammar kind of leaning toward them, like the, because the Greek doesn't have a definite article. Amen? So we said, they say, oh, the Greek doesn't have a definite article, therefore it should be a God. And we say, no, 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 it has to be God Almighty. And, you know, you guys remember the answer? Or should I go forward with it? No, remember. Okay. Actually, we were both wrong. The Greek here doesn't try to tell us if Jesus was a God or he was the God. Amen? What the Greek is trying to tell us here, long story short, I'm not going to bore you with all the grammar behind it. But long story short, what, what John was telling us here is that the word was exactly God in his nature. He was exactly the same nature like the Father. Where do we get that from? How do we know this to be true? Because in John 1.18, John said, and the word became flesh. Again, that phrase, the word became flesh, you compare it to the word was God. John 1.1, John 1.18. These two phrases has the exact same Greek grammar structure. They're identical in the grammar structure in Greek. Amen? So if we want to know what one phrase means, it's good to look into the other phrase. They're in the same chapter, in the same context, the same grammar construction. So this is like our cue, our clue there, how to understand John 1.1. 1, 1. Amen? So let's look at John 1.18. The word became flesh. Question. Did John, is John is trying to tell us that the word became our flesh or the word became that flesh? He's talking about incarnation, correct. John is not concerned about if the word became a flesh or the flesh. He's not, he's not trying to discuss the identity of the word, but he's trying to discuss the nature of the word. And that's the difference. You guys follow me? So when John 1.18, John is simply, simply telling us the word became flesh in his nature. The word became fleshly. Amen. And what John was telling us here in John 1.18, that the word became flesh in his nature, is precisely what he was trying to tell us in John 1.1, that the word was God. John is not concerned about the identity of the word in John 1.1. He's not trying to present a theological argument if the word is a God or that God, but John is describing the nature of the word. And he's saying that the word was exactly God. Everything that God is, the word is. Amen? So if you put John 1, 1 and John 1, 18 together, you come up to this amazing fact. That the one who was exactly God has become exactly man and he has dwelled among us and has tabernacled and lived among us. And we have seen his glory as, as the glory of the one and only of the Father. Amen? That's what John is trying to tell us. And that sounds familiar, right? Philippians 2, we talked about this, right? What did it say? That he who was from the, in the very nature God, he poured himself out to become man. Amen? The one who's exactly God became exactly man. And just like the mercy seat was the place where God Almighty was dwelling among sinful men, so is with Jesus. Jesus who's walking our earth, just like you and me, fully human, yet in him, Paul said that the fullness of the Godhead dwelled in a fleshly form. Amen? 
The mercy seat was God's dwelling place among men. So is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, when he was walking our earth, the Godhead in flesh. But number two, the mercy seat was the place, the way for sinful man and holy God to communicate together. Where do we get that from? A couple of examples. Exodus 25, 22. Look what the Lord is saying. Therefore, above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, what did God say? I will meet with you and do what? And give you all my commandments for the Israelites. We just read that verse from uh, Exodus 25. So God is telling Moses, I will meet you there on that, on that lid, on that mercy seat. And there I will communicate. I will talk to you and give you all my commandments. Amen? Amen. Exodus 36. Put the altar in front of the curtain. That's the veil that we talked about last week. That shields the Ark of the Covenant, uh, of the covenant Law. Before the atonement cover, the atonement cover is the mercy seat. Before that mercy seat that is over the tablets of the covenant law where I, what? Meet with you at that cover, at that mercy seat. God said to Moses, I will meet with you there. That's the place where God meet and communicate with man. Numbers 789. When Moses entered the tent of meeting, to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice of the Lord speaking to him from where? From between the cherubim, where? Above the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant law. In that way, God did what? The Lord spoke to him. So that mercy seat, that lid, is the place where God meet and talk to sinful men. Amen? And that's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that just awesome? Look at this. This is just so cool. In, in John 1, 50 to 51. Now, Philip found Jesus. He thinks that Jesus is the Messiah. He goes to call his brother Nathaniel. And he's like, come and see. We have found the Messiah. Nathaniel is very skeptical. He's decided to give it a try. He goes to see Jesus. That's John 1, 50 and 51. Here's where we pick up. Look at this. Jesus answered him. That's Nathaniel just coming. And Jesus just starts talking to him. And he said, because I said to Jesus told him, well, you are true Israelites. He's like, how do you know I am? And Jesus was like this right here. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? And look at this. You will see greater than this. And he said to him, Jesus, saying to Nathaniel, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see what? Heavens open. And what? And the angels of God ascending and descending on the son. Who's that son of man? Jesus, right? Okay, this is the pop quiz again. The angels of God ascending and descending. That phrase was mentioned one more time in the whole Bible. Can anybody say where it's at? Your cue is in the following verse. <laughs> it's in Genesis 28. What's happening in Genesis 28? Jacob has just deceived his father and has deceived his brother. And he stole the blessing and he's running away. The deceiver, the sinful, the most wicked of all who doesn't care for his own dad and his own brother has just deceived both of them and on the run. Amen? He goes to a place eventually called Bethel. And on that place, he's just exhausted from the trip. He just picks up a stone and he sleeps there just done. He's just, he got to the bottom of all wickedness and all sin, right? 
And while he's sleeping, he has a dream, he has a vision. And on that dream, he sees a ladder. And on that ladder, the Bible says this in, in Genesis 28, 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and on the top of the ladder it reached heaven. And behold, the angels of God, what? Ascending and descending on that ladder, right? And God Almighty was on the top of that ladder, and instead of God pronouncing a curse and a judgment on Jacob because he has sinned, God started pronouncing blessings on him, and he said, if you follow me, I will take care of you, and God didn't care about his sins and showed sinful Jacob such grace and such mercy. Amen? Amen. Think about it. Sinful Jacob at the bottom of the ladder. Holy and righteous God on the top of the ladder. And the holy and righteous God is pronouncing blessings and grace on a sinner that doesn't deserve it. And between the holy God and the, the sinful man, there is a ladder on which the angels of God ascending and descending. Jesus took the liberty on John 1 to say that very ladder where the angels of God ascending and descending is actually me that's where holy god and sinful man can meet and that's where the grace of god that god can give sinners can only be found it's only in me isn't that good amen so that mercy seat was the place where sinful where holy god and sinful sinful man can talk can communicate and so is Jesus. He's the only one in which the holy God and sinful man can ever have a relationship. It's only through Jesus. Amen? Amen. Last one. The mercy seat is God's only provision to escape for man to escape his judgment. We talked about this last week and we talked about it before. What does the angel cherubim represent in the scripture? Judgment. Cherubims in the scripture presents wrath. You guys remember why? We talked about this last week. First time that angel was mentioned in the scripture is in Genesis chapter 3. That's when Adam and Eve sinned against God and God kicked them out of the, the garden. And what does God do after they're out? He brings an, a cherubim angel with a sword that is turning everywhere to protect the entrance of the garden so Adam and Eve cannot go back. So cherubim always in the scripture represent the wrath of God over sin, God's judgment over our sin. Yet God said on the top, on that lid, you have to have what? Two cherubims because that represents God's judgment over sin. Amen? But the cool thing is this. Here's it. Is this place called the judgment seat or is this place called the mercy seat? Mercy seat, not judgment seat. You know why? Because in that place, the judgment of God is quenched. It's in that lid that the wrath of God can go over sinners once and for all, and they will never need to be judged after that. Therefore, it is a mercy seat, because that's where God shows his undeserved grace and mercy to sinners who don't even deserve it, even though we deserve the judgment. On that place, he lets his judgment pass over us and his grace to come on us. Amen? That's why this place is called a mercy seat. And on that lid, the atonement, the propitiation, the covering of the sin can be provided. You guys remember when we started, we said, what is propitiation? It's the concept of God is being mad, God is being angry, and then it is through one gift that his wrath can be up eased once and for all. Amen? 
And it's the same principle here. It's, let's read about this. It's in, in Leviticus 16, 14 to 16. That's the day of atonement. Let's see the purpose of that mercy seat. He is to take some of the bull's blood. That's he is the high priest. Now God is saying about the rituals of the, of the uh, day of atonement. The high priest is to take some of the bull's blood and with his fingers he sprinkles the front of the atonement cover. That's the mercy seat. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his fingers seven times before the atonement, atonement cover, the mercy seat. Verse 15, he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover, the mercy seat, and in front of it in this way. Look at verse 16. In this way, through the blood sprinkled over the atonement cover, over the mercy seat. In this way, he shall make what? Atonement. In this way, he shall make propitiation. In this way, he can make covering for the for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and the rebellious of the children of Israel. So God is saying that mercy seat has the major purpose of it is when the blood is sprinkled on it once a year, then a wrath of a holy and a righteous God over the sin of Israel can pass over them once and for all. Amen. 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 And that's a precise picture of what Paul told us even in, in Romans 3.25. Look at this. Talking about Jesus, Paul said, Whom God has put forward, has publicly displayed as a mercy seat. Right? How? By his, by his blood to be received by faith. What is Paul trying to tell us here? Paul is trying to say, just like in the Old Testament, when the blood of an innocent sacrifice is to be sprinkled over the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and because of that blood, the wrath of a holy and a righteous God can pass over sinful Israel for a full year, till next year when new blood needs to be shed on that Ark, so is the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. The blood of Jesus provides covering, atonement. It's the place where the mercy of God and the grace of God can be provided for sinful human beings like me, you and me. Amen? Not because God decided not to punish sin. It's because he decided to punish sin. He just punished Jesus on our behalf. Amen? And when Jesus died on the cross, he took upon himself the wrath of God. And through his blood, he appeased once and for all the wrath of a holy and a righteous God against every sin we have ever committed. Amen? Amen. This is an awesome. I love preaching today. That's awesome. Amen. This is, I'm having a revival right here. That's amazing. There is, I will never get sick of talking to people about the blood of Jesus and what he has done for us. Amen. Amen. Jesus has provided propitiation, atonement, covering for our sins before the holy and the righteous God by his blood. And that's how the mercy seat of the Old Testament is a picture of Christ. It's the place where God dwelled among men. It is the place where holy God communicated with sinful men. And number three, it's the only place where our sins can be atoned for and covered and the wrath of God can pass over us once and for all. Amen? Amen. Let's come to before the presence of God.